Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and it is a pleasure today to have with me Mr. Doc Dixon, who is a magician, comedian, and speaker who has done corporate events, trade shows, and even two shows at the White House. He gained notoriety by fooling Penn and Teller on their show, Fool Us, and today he's here as a Christian to chat with us about how to deceive others for a living. Thanks for being with us, Doc. (laughs) Wow! I'm just going to start off right at the gate. We're just probably going to have a few shockers. Let's bring in, in the Janice and Jambres reference. Come on, <laughs> bring it. Yeah. You want to go there. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. How did it So, see? Well, I didn't mean to catch you too off guard there, but it's really a pleasure to have no, you no, on here. You, you and I have been chatting. Me. You oh, disappointed me. Oh. Disappointed me. That's How's all. that? I just, I thought you were kinder. But go ahead. Oh, you thought go I ahead. was kinder. Well, you know what? I recently recorded an episode and people who heard it before it actually went live told me I was too kind. So maybe I'm just compensating. I respect that. So yeah, I had an idea for the title of this episode. I was listening to the uh, last episode with Bonnie Christian was the last name. Yeah. Talking about headlines and all that and how, you know, the headline of the story can be one thing and the actual story is another thing. I think the headline or the title of this episode should be, He Dismembers Christians. Oh, man. That would get a lot of clicks. I know. I know. And you see, I saw people in half in my show, but yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to help you out. You need a bump is what I'm saying. You need a bump. Okay. All right. In the ratings. Should I ask you to help me with the YouTube thumbnail on that one? YouTube (laughs) That's all you. That's all you. <laughs> Photoshop is not my gift. Oh, no. All right. Oh, man. Well, I, you know. <laughs> See, you're not okay. used to you, you people messing no. back with you. See, kids, not. listening up, kids. Stand up to the bullies. Stand up to the bullies. Go ahead, Doug. <laughs> Go ahead. Come on. Bring it. Bring all it. All right. All right. So let's start off with this with the most important question. In our political climate today, everybody needs to know, how do you identify? Are you a comedian? Are you a magician? Who knows? Oh, oh, I thought you meant like political party. No. Oh, no, no. I'm talking identity politics, and it's so important that we know whether you're a comedian or a magician. You know, really, the being serious, kind of the artsy-fartsy answer to that is identify as Doc Dixon. Mm. And what I mean is there's specific vision I have for the character that I portray on stage, and, and a little bit of the starkiness here, mm-hmm. that I want to make that more specific all the time. Kind of like the old thing about how do you carve an elephant? You get an elephant-sized rock and chip away the parts that aren't elephant. I want to chip away the parts that aren't Doc Dixon. But to give you a less artsy answer, I'm a comic magician. I'm never going to be the guy to be super serious. Like a thing I, I regularly do with my scripts is, you know, and I do have scripts. I'm just not making stuff up. You know, it's that I will go with, on the laptop, not physically, but with a green highlighter, where are the jokes? Mm. Where can I expect laughs? So I have a visual representation of what that performance is going to look like. And if I'm not seeing a certain amount of green, because that's what I highlight in green, then I'm like, 
I got to punch that up. So comic magician would be what I do. That's great. You know, I've listened to you on a handful of episodes. You've been on the Tom Woods show a handful of times. And, you know, I've known you by name. I know you did some events for him. Many people know you from Fooling Penn and Teller. And my kids enjoyed watching that recently when I was like, hey, I'm interviewing this guy. I got to see more about what he's doing. And I do remember seeing that soon after you actually had fooled them. What I didn't know is when until you went on the Godarchy podcast, I didn't realize you were a Christian. And it was something that was interesting to me for a number of reasons. But did you grow up in the church? Did you become a Christian later in life? What's your story there? I'll give you two answers for that too. Here's my favorite answer. Every time I've not every time, but many times when my wife and I and family have joined a new church and they ask, when did you become a Christian? I'm reminded of a story, and I'll sh- I share this then, of a little old lady who was joining a Presbyterian church. And they asked her, when did you become a Christian? And she said, 31 AD. That's when we all became what? Aren't we Calvinists here? That's, <laughs> that's a good one. That's the answer I always want to give. But For those of you that aren't Reformed, you can look it up and that'll make that joke more understandable. But that joke's funnier with little old ladies saying it, not with a, you know, older, middle-aged, grown man. But mid-30s. Yeah. So I became a believer. So a couple years ago. Bless you. Bless (laughs) you, my son. (laughs) I'm not going to make any guesses there, but uh, no, that's good. So before you became a Christian... Did you identify as an atheist? Did you have any sort of like, eh, just like I believe in God or like what was the status of your faith before you converted, if we want to say it that way? The latter, just yeah. meh kind of thing. Just wasn't but, into it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, thankfully the Lord didn't uh, give up on me with his irresistible grace and all that good stuff. So here I am. Yeah, that's really good. So you've been a libertarian since I think in previous episodes, the Ron Paul revolution. And I know a lot of people ask like, you know, who led you to the Lord? Well, I'm going to ask you, who led you to Ron Paul? Like, how did you get connected? Was it simply watching the debates during the, I guess, 2012 election? Or was it something else? It eventually got there rather quickly, but some of it was I was reading about buying gold and concepts like fiat money entered my brain. And then that quickly... I don't even say the rabbit hole, the very, let's say the very short rabbit hole mm-hmm. led me to libertarianism, Ron Paul. You know, it's funny. The answer of how you become a libertarian for the past, you know, 20 plus years for most of us involves Ron Paul. So I've wanted to come up with, I was bitten by a radioactive Rothbard, you know, anything. <laughs> it's just kind of, I was exposed to a Hayek radiation. I don't know. Anything yeah, yeah, yeah. is a little different, but yeah, Ron Paul. Yeah. Okay. You know, what I find interesting about that is that that's the answer for so many. And yet, even though he's, you know, beloved within the libertarian community, I'm just speaking for myself. There's a general fondness, but I've never seen a cult of personality surrounding him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he brought so many people into the discussion. Yeah, I've never seen that. And it's a very positive thing to me. He didn't want the movement to hinge upon him. He wanted it to hinge upon the ideas that he thought were true and that he thought were important to preserving liberty. Yeah. Was there something about him in particular that attracted you to the libertarian message? Because I I know I was led to Ron Paul through Glenn Beck because Glenn Beck would have him on for economic stuff. But then Glenn Beck, and, and at the time me, thought Ron Paul was crazy with respect to foreign policy. 
And so that came later for me. But originally, it was really more about the economic policies. And I was sort of learning economics. So for you, was it more economic or was there more to it? I think all of it. You know, the economics stuff in one way stands out because economics is math and math is pretty cut and dried. Mm -hmm. But then the other things of philosophical is not the word, but I'll use it for now. In one of the debates, one of the most memorable moments when uh, drugs were being discussed and talking about drug legalization and uh, Ron Paul turns to the audience and says, paraphrasing, if heroin was legal tomorrow, how many of you would start doing heroin? And yeah. it gets this huge laugh. And it was such a well-made point with both laughter and, you know, virtually unassailable logic that laws aren't the be-all and end-all of a virtuous life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, there's a lot to love there. And you're right. He is beloved and is not the cult of personality that we see sort of on the right and on the left. And so that's really kind of neat. I guess you were a Christian, then you became a libertarian. Were there any particular issues that you thought might have been in conflict or did it seem pretty natural to you? It seemed pretty natural and it became more natural the more I fully grasp how limited the state is in addressing right Mm -hmm. and wrong. A metaphor I like to use is, you know, if you have to put a screw somewhere, you're doing a household repair you don't feel like getting up and getting the screwdriver. You're in the kitchen and the butter knife is there. You could use a butter knife, but it's just not the tool for the job. And often it doesn't get in as well and you'll nick whatever around it, you know, you know, flesh out the metaphor on your own because Doug and I have time, people. We don't have time to flesh this out. But anyway, (laughs) and then a helpful argument that I've used in discussion, and I think I might've talked about it on Mike's show, is that if you were asked a Christian, are you against heresy? Well, unless they're way out there, they're going to say, yes, I'm against heresy. And then you ask them, what laws should we have against heresy? Well, hopefully, unless they're full-blown out over the edge theonomists, their answer will be, no, we shouldn't have laws against heresy. So that being said, then there are some wrongs, and in that case, very grievous wrongs, that the government is just not the tool to deal with it. So that little train of thought helped me too. Well, that seems like a really easy way to explain to people how, I want to say the word likable, but how one could actually like the libertarian philosophy, even if they can't quite embrace it, that they could look at it and say, oh, okay, so you've thought this through, it's practical to an extent, it's not just this like really far out there kind of philosophy that I've never heard of, or that's obscure, or nobody cares about, that there's a practical dimension to how do we handle sin, vice, those kinds of things. Yeah. I think many years back when he was in office, Ronald Reagan said at the heart of republicanism is libertarianism. That's not an exact quote, but it was something like that. Now, more accurately, I think he should have said at the heart of what we are pretending to be, but let's face it, not really, but you know, we want to act that way, limited government, yada, yada, nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's libertarianism. Those that are already deep in statism, man, that's a tough path or far deeper than what we're talking about. How to get to those folks, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Do you incorporate anything political into any of your, I don't, do you call them acts, shows, whatever? Shows, acts, whatever. No, because my children, they have a food addiction. You know, they they like to eat. They like clothing. They're... <laughs> have a nice home. They're like, oh, 
No, but it's not just that. It's just not the business side of it. If you hire a guy, if you hire a plumber to fix your toilet, and let's say he shares his politics, you probably won't care that much because one, you're an accepting guy and the experience of the fixed toilet will remain the same. On the other hand, I as an entertainer, specifically as a comic, if I get political in any stretch, it is going to ruin the product that I'm supposed to give the client. Hmm. So it's not just this fear of offense, it's fear of not being able to deliver the goods Mm -hmm. I was hired to give. What about doing what other comedians do and like sort of pick at both sides, like play it equally? Okay. Like pretty close together, not just like... There was a story I heard, and I I wish I knew who it happened to, but I heard it from a good source. Eight plus years ago, a guy was doing... No, well, whenever Trump started running, he was doing a Trump hair joke. A joke about Trump's hair. If there is not a bipartisan political comment or topic, it's definitely Trump's hair. Yeah. And it polarized the crowd. You could hear, you're on stage and you can hear people's butts tightening up, you know, not something you (laughs) want as a performer. So if you can't do that, probably the most I address it is just kind of a general tone of, you know, either side. I don't much trust either side kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Skepticism. Well, and I think that's at the heart of libertarianism in a lot of ways, at least in terms of the posture toward people who tell you they're going to do good things for you. Please vote for me. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, from a reform standpoint, last I checked, total depravity applies if you're running for office too. You know, probably even more so. (laughs) Maybe. Just maybe. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Shoot, that distracted me from my next question, but um, which I can't remember. So I I know you don't have notes, you're not prepared for this. I do, but I had an invisible question that came to my mind about one minute ago that now I can't remember. So, you know, you're just you're just that engaging even over choppy Zoom call here. Um (laughs) (laughs) Zoom video. Okay, wait. I'll do the joke I wanted to squeeze in earlier. Give you a chance to think of it. Oh, for it. Yeah. I've seen when you do the YouTube thing where it's you and like I think four or five of the other people there Mm -hmm. in the Libertarian Institute. It's like the Zoom call Brady Bunch looking thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, our Good News, Bad News show. Yes, I really enjoy that. And I have this theory. If Carrie Baldwin was not on that show, it would change dramatically in this regard. Women, for most men, are a civilizing influence. Mm -hmm. You know, I say this as a husband, as a father of a daughter, brother of a sister. Take her out of that show within three weeks, you guys are in t-shirts, boxers, Doritos on your shirts, just (laughs) total, total decay, a lot of belching going on. That's what I see happening to the show. So that's, um, I'm just saying that if she hears this, she should get a raise just for that. She (laughs) was just for keeping you guys in line. Well, she certainly kept us in line. My initial response is, well, you don't know the half of it. Because, <laughs> because we you would spend almost as much time off air as we hat t shirt, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we would spend as much time off air as we do on air. And I you know, she kept us together, I guess, a bit. We've actually changed the format of that show. I don't know if you've noticed. I'll have to send you a link to it. Please actually do. I already did. I sent you that one uh, and you were worried that we were 
what was it? We quoted Leviticus for our verse on immigration, and you were like, you were humorously uh, calling us theonomists, which we're not. But uh, anyway, no, we changed the format to be a little bit more direct. So for those listening, they can check out Good News, Bad News on our YouTube channel, and it's a little bit different as we've evolved. But anyway, we've got other plans in store. I didn't remember that invisible question because, again, you're just too engaging talking about my other shows that we're doing at LCI. But let's just pivot to the magic stuff. I have been fascinated as a kid, as a lot of people are, with not just doing magic tricks, but sort of on the... I don't know how to ask this question. I've like thought of this several ways. And of course, I've had like three weeks to prepare for this interview, and I still can't figure out the wording to this question. But I've often wondered, what does it take on a personal level to become aware of how to do certain magic tricks? Do you have to figure it out? Because you're, you know, a magician never tells his secrets, right? As sort of, I was like, well, if that's true, then like, it's Doc, not. if I wanted to pay you, I couldn't actually learn from you because you can't tell me your secrets. Yeah, it's, like, it's maybe you true. won't tell me. So, okay. So then the question here is how much of this is figuring things out versus, you know, you, I mean, at some point, you have to protect a little bit of your, maybe, I don't want to call it intellectual property or I'll get fired. But if we want to pretend it's called intellectual property, so I can keep my job as host at LCI. You got to retain some of that, right? <laughs> that, that like you're not going to tell me everything. Of Stephen Kinsella behind you. <laughs> I, I was, I was like, what? Well, it's an odd choice for a knickknack, but well, he's a handsome feller, you know. <laughs> oh, sure. How do you become a magician? Okay, I, I really the whole thing about magicians never reveal their secrets. Kind of yes and no. I mean, we do, obviously. I mean, all 90% of these books that are behind me here in what I refer to as the pretentious, look at my books, you know, mm -hmm. set here. And there's so many books on your shelves, Doc, that like your bookshelves are like tipping over. Well, that's maybe that's because the screen's not right oh, here. Okay. Oh, wait, I have this in the Batman villain mode. You remember that from the 1960s? <laughs> and the old show, whenever the villains were on, the, it was canted. Ah, uh, okay. I have much useless knowledge. Thank you. Wow, libertarian guy knowing nerdy stuff? I know you're shocked. <laughs> but anyway, to your target audience, it's kind of a milk versus meat thing. They're a collection of secrets, of magic methods that are generally deemed by those who are in this. Yeah, you can share this with someone who wants to learn it. You know, there was a guy on TV when I was growing up, had these commercials. Marshall Brodeen sold TV magic cards, he called them. Uh, I'm so old, you can buy them in the retro toy section now. And TV magic cards were a reissue of a trick deck of cards, a gimmick deck. I think goes back to uh, early 1900s, more geek knowledge, invented by a guy named Burling Hull, called a Svengali deck. So he sold these. And I think this has been in the 70s, like five bucks, you know, you get your little kid would get his mom to send in a check for five bucks, all pre-internet stuff. So you could buy those secrets. Now with the internet, I mean, there are some things that I know and do that back in the day, it was almost kind of, you got to know somebody to learn this. And that's the more, you know, uh, esoteric sleight of hand sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But now it's all out there. It's all out there. All of it can be bought. Some of it you could just find with a very diligent internet search. The downside of that is 
free teachers often are very bad teachers. So they're explaining stuff that they really don't know what they're talking about. But yeah, it's, you just learn. You learn more stuff that entitles you to learn more stuff and then more stuff. That's it. Do magicians have like group gatherings where they like show each other some of their cool things they learned? Like, I, I don't know. I'm imagining yeah. like if I had... Yeah, okay. So, because I'm thinking, man, if I were a magician, I would love to like have cocktail parties with others and like show them a few things I've learned and like, hey, I learned this skill to be this way. I don't even know how to talk about it. Be this way. And it took me, you know, 20 hours to figure it out. But then I learned this one neat trick, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. What is that like communicating and fellowshipping with fellow magicians? When it's done talking about sleight of hand, it's basically talking about uh, the, the term we use is sessioning. Okay. You know, here, let me show you this sleight of hand move, that sort of thing. Although my closest buddies that are magicians, you know, we'll talk about stuff like this. Dude, I got this new bag to carry my props in when I fly. <laughs> you would be shocked the amount that like working pro magicians like myself geek out about new cases. Well, sure. I can understand that. Oh, it's big. Yeah. Or... Okay, one guy posted this. Now, I'm not into this. I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite. But he did the digital printers. He has a digital printer. He printed up, or is that what you call when you, yeah, print something that's 3D, 3D printer, whatever. 3D printer is what I meant. He printed up a 3D prop. And here's what he did with it. One, he made it so it was lighter. So now it weighs less. Two, he made it so it can nest inside another prop when he travels so it packs smaller. Three, he made it out of glow-in-the-dark plastic so he can look in his case and see it more easily. Wow. To me, as a magician, now there's, I, I shared no secret there, but as a working pro, I'm like, mind blown. Yeah. Mind blown, because it's often, as a performer, it's those little things and the collection of those little things adding up that make for a polished performance. So I humorously introduced you as a Christian who's going to talk about deceiving others for a living. Have you come across any Christians who think like doing magic tricks are kind of like off limits for Christians? Yeah, it's funny though. I met most of them when I was in my 20s. And I think now... You know, just just being a grown man and maybe just having a general look that doesn't look like I suffer fools easily. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Or maybe just society has grown up a little. I don't see that. I mean, I'll, I'll give you real quick my answers to that. One, it's not deception. It's theater. Guess what? Charlton Heston really wasn't Moses. It's theater. Mm. Yeah, right. You don't know how it's done. Well, so what? I don't know how the guy fixed my transmission. Doesn't mean he's in league with Beelzebub. Stop it. Fair point. You know, it's it's <laughs> that simple. That the not knowing how it's done and assuming it's supernatural, there's an unintended hubris there. Hmm. So yeah, but it's many years. Yeah, the whole supernatural thing is interesting. So my wife and I were in Vegas for the first time for Freedom Fest this year. And you go to the airport, you see all these billboards. I don't know, is that really the term anymore? These marquees, whatever you want to call them. They're really bright. Signs, signs, we call them. Signs, signs. yeah. They, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're being enticed to go to these shows, right? And some of them have really dark themes. And some of them are even titled, you know, kind of dark-like stuff. And my wife and I are standing there talking, and we're like, we wonder how much of this is just simply really amazing, you know, Vegas-level sleight of hand, where you're fooling a lot of people. 
and they know it, right? Versus actual things that are dabbling maybe in the occultic or if that's a word. Like, does that happen? Is that there? Have you come across it? Or is this literally all sleight of hand and these people are all that good? Literally, literally, all of it. (laughs) All of it. You know, I think if you want to look for ungodly things, oh, I don't know. I think people simulating sex acts in a dance show. Maybe that would be something as a Christian. (laughs) You should be, hey, I want to keep away from that. As opposed to, look, there's a rabbit in that hat. (laughs) I'm sorry. Pardon my sarcasm. But, you know, if it was good enough to teach the prophets of Baal, you know, Let's wet this stuff. It's not going to come on fire. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I just said, you know, where's Mahari? He was nice. He was nice. Wow. I'm In sorry. other words, he was too I'm, easy. I'm, please, just to be clear, I'm not offended at all. I'm just goofing on you. No, but no, no. It's all good. Words are serious, well, though. Not the delivery. No, no, no. It's all good. I grew up in a Christian atmosphere where, well, I mean, we watched David Copperfield when he was on TV and when he, you know, did, yeah, I know, right? But, you know, we wouldn't go to a magic show or anything like that. We didn't have that opportunity, really. But it was just one of those, like, you have that attitude about there are demonic forces out there. People do try to tap into it that does give them, you know, special powers, potentially, you know, we don't when? know, like, things. When? What do you mean, when? Show me when someone has special powers. In like a theatrical thing, that's not a magic. Show. Well, I—that's the thing. As a kid, I could never really point to that, other than okay. again, like what you said earlier. It's like, well, we don't know where this, how he did it, as if that were the only re- like that's conspiracy, right? Like we don't know how he did it. It must be the devil, <laughs> you know. Like that's not a safe attitude to take. But as a kid, yeah. you just have that sort of doubt that this is simply as straightforward as it is that it's theater, right? That somebody's not trying to do something, or there's that certain level of suggestibility that leads you to wonder, well, was I sort of hypnotized by that situation in the close-up magic? That kind of stuff. It just, again, naive people are going to fill in the blanks for what they think is happening if they don't realize that something so spectacular is truly, simply, sleight of hand and suggestibility. Teller of Penn and Teller Mm -hmm. has a great line related to this, and I'm going to butcher it. I didn't know he had lines. Oh, he does. That sometimes the way a magic trick is done is that someone is willing to spend more time working on something and practicing it than you would ever dream possible. Mm. Very true in sleight of hand. Okay. So it takes a lot of work then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this something you show your family first? You do it in front of a mirror? You have this little dark room that you know, since photography is outdated, you use it now for magic. What do you, just a funny pun, because I just was talking about dark magic and (laughs) we were going off of that topic. (laughs) Do you go into your dark room, Doc? Wow. Uh, Are you going to peel back a mask? It's Hal Lindsey. What's going on? (laughs) Man. Man. I for what was the question? Oh, yeah. yeah, Where do you, where do you practice? And, and do you do you show people before it's really ready? Or for that matter, do you show other magicians and say, I'm trying to f- figure this out. I don't know how to figure this out. I'm stuck. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Often it's not a matter of showing. It's just a matter of uh, workshopping a bit, talking with a buddy over the phone. It's like, okay, I got this routine. There's five points in it. And the fourth point, that pivot, it just, 
It's just not happening. It's not. Got it. I'm a one, and it's getting a bit of the weeds of magic. Buddies of mine that talk with me a lot about magic, they'll always hear me use the phrase wide engineering tolerances. If a method works great when I've had a good night's sleep, I've had a delightfully healthful meal on a non-stressed day, that's great. But I want it to work when I'm on three hours of sleep, all I had was a Snickers bar, and I'm worried Mm. about something else. I want those wide engineering tolerances in my methods because I have clients that want to be happy and don't care if I've had a lousy day. So the trick's got to work. I mean, it's actually, in some ways... (laughs) both both altruistic and Randian, you know, I've got to (laughs) deliver the goods to them and I want to be that guy to deliver the goods. Yeah. And that applies whether it's the trick or the joke, it's got to work. So yeah, we session, we talk and yeah, all that. And as far as the practice in the mirror, I'll ask my wife, my wife, I've showed my wife magic clips, curious what she thinks of a trick. And she looks at the video and my wife is so wonderful and can be so funny. She looks at the video and a trick that I thought was okay. And she looks at me and goes, his wife must not love him that much. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, you know, she let him put this on video on the web. So, Have you ever failed live? Like where people notice that you failed to pull off the trick or, I mean, I can't imagine everything has gone 100% flawlessly, but sometimes you, if you're good at recovering, you, people don't notice. There are, yeah, as far as a mess up that the audience would notice, 20 plus years. And that's part of that engineering tolerance thing I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just got to make things bulletproof. Yeah, that's happened to every magician at one point or another. It's it's like there's an old expression amongst card cheats. If a guy says he's a card cheat and tell you he's never been busted, he's never been a card cheat. He's lying. Mm. You know, he's a poser. So it's same as a performer. Things happen. Now, as far as things happening that I got to take it a different way and the audience is not aware of, again, even that's been many years. And that's not, that doesn't sound like hubris. It's just choices I've made and have been doing this a while. Well, yeah, I mean, that's totally fair. I'm not trying, I don't think that's hubris at all. I think it's just, you know, being honest and fair with the answer. So you identify yourself as a comic magician. And so I'm also interested in comedy. In fact, we just interviewed Lou Perez recently on our podcast and we talked about humor and he and I talked a little bit about, you know, what kind of humor works in certain circumstances. We talked a little bit about dark humor. How do you, again, I'm going back to that word dark, which is really weird. Maybe we, we, I, you keep telling me that it's I'm nothing not like that. Maybe I'm the one with the problem, Doug. I know, I was... <laughs> kind of wondering here. You're kind of making me realize that I just, you know, man. Uh, (laughs) Those of you who can't see us because we're not recording this over video can't see that we're like sort of silently laughing at each other over the screen. And as a performer, there's nothing that makes me feel more secure than silently laughing. Thanks, Doug. Mm. Nothing tells the listener more than you're entertained than, you know, silence. I don't know how much our audience wants to just sit here and listen to two guys laugh at each other. <laughs> with, so I'm trying- with each other. That's, reframe it with each other. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I'm the one with the problem. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Sorry. How do you... <laughs> the, the simple question is, what does it mean for you when you want to incorporate comedy into your magic theater 
is it simply just a matter of that's just who you are and that's just kind of your personal nature? Or do you feel like that's a just some part of the performance? All of it. Yeah, it's a part of who I am. I think some of that comes from just being perpetually bored, and, you mm-hmm. know, wanting to make things more fun and restless, maybe not bored, but restless. I think some of it comes from what I think the audience wants from me. Mm-hmm. Some of it comes from maybe my insecurities. If they're laughing, I know they're having a good time. If they're just staring and maybe they're enthralled, well, they could be having a good time, but it's not as definitive as laughter. I mean, uh, a little glimpse into the process, the spot you saw me do on Penn and Teller Fool Us, played the shell game, played three rounds with it. After the first round, I knew I needed a laugh or there should be a laugh there. And that's when I did the, uh, if you will, libertarian joke of, You had, I know the problem, you had three choices, they're all empty and identical. It's like voting. That, oddly enough, was the moment I was most thrown in the show because I don't know if you could pick it up on TV. I don't think, actually, I know you can't pick it up on TV as loud as it was there, but Penn and Teller laughed loudly, especially Teller. Mm. And for a guy for several decades, I've barely heard say a word to pop that laugh so hard for him. It was like, whoa. And, you know, fist bumped and all that stuff. But yeah, that's a bit of the process. Just look, and I got to write a joke here. Okay, what do I got in front of me? And it's a little different from stand-up in that my topics, I'm somewhat stuck to what I'm working with. You know, I can't do, hey, playing the shell game. And now a mother-in-law joke. Or what yeah, about right. that airplane food? So. Again, oh, you man. On the video, every time you laugh, you lean away from the mic. I think it's for... Oh, my goodness. Man, now you're laughing you at me. You have vulnerability issues, Doug. You're afraid to show who you are. You're, you're, we like you. Lean into it, brother. I think my audio editor will appreciate that I'm thinking of him while I shouldn't be thinking of anything except this interview. <laughs> but here's the other thing. In my defense, when someone is really, really laughing, don't they, you know, bellow by bending away from... The, oh, 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 oh. Like, that's kind of what I'm doing. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I knew we should have recorded this over video. This would have been way more entertaining for everyone else. All right, let's move on. Yes, sir. Dark humor. You and I were chatting a little bit off air a couple of days ago, and you there was a topic that you were saying is a little probably too serious for you to make jokes about. Do you have a dark humor side, or do you feel like you lean into the everyday situational humor, dad joke kind of stuff? Well, on stage, not dad jokes. I'm not paid for that. Hmm. Yeah, dad jokes have kind of become a euphemism for corny. Yeah, oh yeah. And yeah, not paid for that. This may be a generational thing, but one, a lot of dark humor is shared between, you know, two guys that are talking that know each other well, and they're like, don't you ever say that again, kind of kind of thing. That's almost the mm-hmm. nature of dark humor, of course. Societally, that has changed. But also, it's like the venues where I work. Yeah, it, I'm like, uh, okay, I, I'm doing corporate gigs. I'm doing a show. There's a bunch of people in whatever profession, whatever company. The XYZ company doesn't want to see me do something edgy. You know, really, here's about as edgy as my show gets. It's a joke early on in the show. Well, my boys are three, two, and one. We're out and about. And a sweet little old lady comes up to us, points to my three and two-year-old and says, are those two twins? I point at my one-year-old. I say, no, the triplets. We don't feed that one as much. (laughs) Now, (laughs) 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's like good. in the first two minutes of my show, that joke is in there. But interesting thing, I never tell the audience, that actually happened. But in a supermarket, that happened. Yeah. And I just ad-libbed that. I put it in the act. What was so funny about it at the time was an elderly couple. The woman was shocked. She's like, <gasps> you know, umbrage, umbrage, Hohana umbrage. Her husband, on the other hand, died. He thought it was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> like, it's about time you quit approaching people. Like, just let the guy shop. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, that, yeah, that's literally as dark as I'm going to get. And some of that, you know, comics in the kind of speaking to power kind of vibe, you know, one of uh, society and this and that. And I get that. And there's a lot of comics I like like that. On the other hand, you also have comics. Okay, who today is like that? Uh, Nate Bargatze. You know Nate? Or you know of Nate? Uh, no, I haven't. No. Very successful comic. His dad's a magician. That's how I'm a little more aware of him. And Brian Regan, another one. Mm-hmm. He's not speaking truth to power, you know, but I, I don't think it's hurt his career. Yeah, I gotcha. So a lot of times I, I hear you interviewed on these podcasts, and of course, we've done this a little bit where we've talked about, you know, your career as a musician. And, you know, people are, I'm sure you're used to people being like, wow, how do you do that? They kind of admire what you're doing. What are some people in other fields that you really admire? Like in showbiz or in general? Well, in general, it could be in showbiz. What types of individuals with a certain level of talent just really amaze you? Oh, Okay. Well, in show business as a comic, the late Norm MacDonald. Mm, okay. Big, big fan. I look at his work and I find myself, even though I've heard many of the bits again and again and again, still enjoying them and yet at a different level dissecting them. So good. So great. I admire the way he handled his personal life and a society which pukes out the most personal things. And I'm not saying that's wrong for someone to do that, although obviously the word puke isn't flattering. The fact that his illness was something he shared with those close to him, and that was it, yeah. is, uh, pardon me, it's the John Wayne movies I watched growing up saying this, but part of me is a man, I got to admire that. Yeah. You know, okay, in your field, I admire anyone who is successfully and long-term doing a podcast. Hmm. That's a very specific skill set. What makes that admirable to you? Well, if someone's doing it again and again and again, and I'm assuming it's not a vanity project, they're doing it again and again, and people are listening to it, then there's something about it that is done well. I, I tend to admire things in some ways, regardless of what they are, not totally regardless though, sure. if they're done well, you know, if there's yeah. a craft to them. Yeah, as a performer, I don't think a lot about my work in terms of art. There was a famous author to magicians, David Devant, a British performer, who derisively spoke of the performer who thought of himself as an artiste, mm. you know, that, and all the pretentiousness that would go along with that. So I'm not much into that. Art is something some, that term, someone else can assign that. But I dig the term craft. I think I dig that because my late father was a solid craftsman. I mean, I don't want to say it was of his generation because that seems to take all the work he did and just assigned it to the year he was born in. 
But, you know, fix a car. Yeah, I could do that. Build a house. Yeah, I could do that. You know, this, that, and the other thing, all those things. And I admire that craftsmanship. Mm. So those are some of the things I admire. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's really good. I mean, it's been good to get to know you more and understand a few of the things that, you know, make you tick, be put on the spot a little bit on my end. I'm <laughs> not used to that. So that's been, that's been an experience, which I think is what you want to give people who are part of your audience. Yeah. Related to that, to go into the magic weeds a little, I was years back. You ever watch professional wrestling? Of course you don't. There was, I have. I have. There was a cage match between these two guys. One, uh, JBL, he went by. He was later a Fox News contributor of all things. And the other one, who I understand to be a believer, now passed away, Eddie Guerrero. And he had a move in his normal matches where he would stand on the turnbuckle and jump on a guy who was laying prone, is prone or supine? The guy was laying on his back. I can't remember which. He was laying on his back and he would jump on top of the guy. And he would do that from the turnbuckle. Well, what Eddie did was he climbed up all the way to this cage they were in, you know, probably 10 feet in the air. And he paused up there and the crowd knew what he was going to do. This off the wall thing of jumping from 10 feet in the air on this other guy. And I remember watching that as a performer and thinking, that's part of what I want from my shows. I want that experience of the audience walking away saying, and experience is the key thing, because it's not just something you look at from a side and either laugh at or listen to, but you viscerally experience that feeling of, I don't believe he did that. Mm. Yeah. But within the confines of something that's still acceptable and appropriate. I mean, kind of like the joke I did about, you know, my youngest, we just don't feed that one oh, as yeah. much. You know, it's like, I don't believe you said that. That experience is what I like to give to an audience. Again, within those safe confines, but have them in the moment feel that. And that's a little little bit of the ribbing yeah. of you because, listen, you have people on here that are way smarter than I am. I can't compete with that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I can't. So, and not that I think I'm in competition. I mean that in general terms. Sure. So what can I bring to it? Well, I was on... um Kibby on Liberty a couple weeks ago. And, you know, before that, a couple weeks, he had Gene Epstein on. Well, right. Uh, yeah, Gene Epstein, I mean, he's way smart, but I can be me. And so I can try yeah. to bring a little of that to it. So I want to wrap up by talking about what you do for a living, which is what we've been all, all been talking about. I guess, I, you know, that's an odd way of saying this. But you told me before we got on that doing magic during COVID, during the lockdowns, was all, of course, not done in person, or at least yeah. mostly, or at least you're not going to say on the record that it was not done in person. <laughs> but um, you did magic over Zoom. And I can imagine that people here would be like, oh, wow, I'd love to have him at my party or at my corporate event or whatever. But he's in Atlanta and I'm in Boise, Idaho or Pittsburgh or wherever, wherever else they might be. They're not in Atlanta. But it sounds like maybe you still do things over... I mean, you got to feed your kids, right? Do things over Zoom or over... Uh, I'm I just going to use the word Zoom as the generic word, the way we use Google as Google it. Sure. But how was that experience? And if that's something you still do, how do you actually sell somebody on that they will have an experience that's worth paying for? Oh, okay. Sure. 
Well, first, early on in the question, you know, someone said, I live in Boise. There are these things called planes. They've been in all the papers lately that can take me from Atlanta to, <laughs> to where they are. I don't want to assume you've heard of it. You know, maybe it's something, I mean, duck, duck, go it. But anyway. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me ask you about these airplanes. Is it flown using science or dark magic? <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> That's good. That's good. There's that. Actually, it's funny. You bring up travel in, in just a little bit. I'm heading off on a cruise ship from Hawaii to Bora Bora. So, wow. Yeah. That, Bora Bora is the thing that to me makes it like, wait, isn't that right next to the island of Dr. Moreau? I mean, Bora Bora. So, yeah, travel just a part of doing what I do. As far as, yeah, Zoom events are still taking place. What I typically do for that is I talk to the client and I say, let's set up a Zoom meeting. And I just, you know, I set up my studio and all that. And we just go to it there. But I much more prefer and love oh, sure. the uh, in-person, even if I have to fit my six foot four body in an airplane, you know, Okay. the in-person, which your listeners can find more about that at docdixon.com. That's right. Docdixon.com. Okay. Imagine that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You bring up your website and that was going to be the last thing I do. But I also know that you own libertarianmagician.com. Is there any plans for that to be more than just a forwarder to Doc Dixon? Yes, there are. I'm going to start doing some writing there. Yeah, that's really it. Yeah, it's kind of in the very uh, beginning stages of that. But yeah, I got nothing more than that. I've grown to really love the liberty movement and the thinking behind it. I think it is both virtuous and factual. Mm. And as a Christian, both of those things matter to me. So I want to do more in that to uh, do my, my small part to, what do you call in football? Inch the chains forward. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, sir, I've been, uh, been it's been a pleasure having you on. And, hey, same uh, here. I've, Thanks, Doug. So I, I yeah. very much appreciate the invitation. Well, it's been good. And I hope you have a great cruise. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 